Welcome to Allegedly Guilty, our true crime channel where we discuss current cases from our perspective as retired law enforcement officers now working on the criminal defense side. We're your hosts, I'm Angela Ng, and with me is Joe Murray. Joe and I are both retired NYPD police officers, and we now work together at Joe Murray's Law Firm. I want to thank you guys for all your continued support of our channel, Allegedly Guilty. We took a little break during the holidays. The courts have reopened. Uh, we have so many trials that are backed up that uh, we've been waiting to move forward with, so we got a little tied up with that. But there's so much going on in the true crime community, particularly this Gabby Petito, Brian Laundry case. But uh, before we go into that, you know, we just suffered a tragic loss of a uh, NYPD police officer uh, Friday night. Uh, really sad. Jason Rivera, he's 22 years old. He was in the 3-2 three, three precinct in Central Harlem. Uh, him and his partner, Wilbert Mora, they were responding to a domestic violence call that ended tragically. Uh, it really hurts me and, and, and Angela being retired members of the NYPD uh, whenever an officer dies. But I worked in the 32nd Precinct back in 1995 for a brief period. And, and you know, I know the cops there, you know, the layout of what happened. Uh, it was a, less than a block away from Harlem Hospital. I could tell you these cops probably ran them down there into the hospital and the precinct is a block away from where the shooting was so there must have been an army of cops racing down 135th street out of the precinct when that happened because there's one thing about the three two these cops protect each other you know the three two um you know back in 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 the the days of uh the violent crime days of of new york city in the 90s the three two which is Central Home and the 75, which is East New York, Brooklyn, they were like in competition every year for the most homicides in the city. And at times it was over a hundred in one precinct. So uh, a very violent precinct, a lot of crime that uh, I, I can tell, I could see it in my head when this call came over, it's a block away from the precinct. I'm sure that whole building emptied out and it, it looked like some kind of army invasion because those cops back each other up. They are out there, all cops do, but no more than the three two. Uh, so our hearts go out to uh, Jason Rivera and his family, and also Wilbert Mora, who's fighting for his life right now. I heard that he was transferred to NYU Langone. And, uh, he's still on life support. He's still on life support. He's still fighting. He's 27 years old. He only had about four years on the job. Over four years. So, uh, you know, getting a little emotional, but, uh, you know, so we wanted to lead off with that. And, uh, you know, I just want to point out, this is the fifth, fourth and fifth officer NYPD cop shot in 2022. We're not even done with January. We have five cops shot. Yeah. So uh, it, it's really bothering us. And, you know, we just ask you to keep them in your prayers and, your fa and their families and all police officers uh, but out of out of tragedy sometimes some good comes of it and i wanted to just show you you know this crime gun violence is so dangerous but uh i just wanted to show you eric adams and his reaction to this is the first shooting of the year new year's day it was a police officer in the two five precinct which is the adjoining precinct 
The three two is in Central Harlem. The two five is on the east side, east of the three two. Um, so he's here talking about the first shooting. So we just want to go to that video, if you can, Hinge. There's our guy. We must not only find the gun, but we must find the person who discharged the weapon, and we must find those who believe they're going to destroy our city with gun and gang violence. That is not going to happen. That bullet struck Keith, but it could have struck any person or individual that was walking through the streets. And I am clear on my mission to aggressively go after those who are carrying violent weapons in our city. And I'm going to be undetermined and aggressive by doing so. The commissioner and I and this team of law enforcement personnel across this city, mission one is to deal with the gun violence in our city. You know, I just want to stop it there. And I, I, I'm so proud of Eric first for becoming mayor and for really filling those shoes so quickly. Here's January 1. He just became mayor, and a brother police officer was shot, and as he correctly characterized it, one of our police officers, the city's police officers, is very unifying the way he discusses it. He's trying to bring people together. This whole madness of defunding the police, disrespecting the police, uh, abolishing the police, Eric is not about that. And I'll tell you something, Eric worked during the, during the most violent times in the NYPD's history, in New York City's history. He's seen it. He knows the devastation of these gun, these gun violence cases. Uh, and I gotta tell you, if you've worked in, in the NYPD in the city during that time period, it's inescapable, the body count, the, the death and destruction that you witnessed during that time period and to see it creeping back, it's very scary. So, you know, I just want to just for my, let me go to the second video we have teed up here. In 2019, I ran for district attorney. And one of the things that I was so offended by, because even back then, this whole defund the police was coming around, the disrespect for police, water bucket dumping, uh, they were blaming the police for everything and talking about addressing gun violence as they are now, Governor Hochul, talking about it as this is a Washington problem. This is a, a gun trafficker problem. But they're, they're totally eliminating the personal responsibility of that person who picks up a gun, carries it, points it, and fires it. They keep focusing. This is the progressive left of New York City and these woke prosecutors all they want to talk about, they want to eliminate all personal responsibility. They let them all out without any prison sentences. They get out and release some of them without any bail or, or, or any restraints on them. So let me just play this video. This is 2019. And this is an NYPD retired officer, Joe Murray, running for district attorney, who at the same time, I lived through this just like Eric did. That's why it was so nice to see his comments and focus 
on gun violence and how important it is. This is a, a, another clear difference between me and Ms. Katz, uh, Borough President Katz, I'm sorry. A clear difference in that she just wants to throw programs at a problem I would say is our most severe and dangerous problem. Guns kill people. People that shoot people kill people. It's the people that are doing this. I think we need to have a very clear policy. You use a gun, you carry a gun, you're going to prison. That's it. Unless you come in and sit with me and talk to me or my investigators about where you got this gun, what crimes you know about or you've been involved in, if not, I'm sending that clear message. You carry a gun or use a gun in Queens County illegally, you're going to prison. The contrary is she only wants to go after gun traffickers. I don't see how we eliminate the personal responsibility of the person that makes that decision to pick up a gun and then fire that gun. Why should that person not be punished? You know, this is, this is the problem today <clears throat> that we're having. We have these, the woke community. I don't even want to just say woke prosecutors because we have all these woke politicians that are focusing on something called decarceration. And decarceration essentially means they want to abolish all jail and all prisons. And this is their philosophy. They believe there is no such thing as a criminal. These are victims. What's the big picture? Are we missing something? Yeah, uh, <laughs> is there something we're not seeing here? That's what it is. This is, you know, the, their philosophy is that we have to treat people as if they're victims, they're not criminals. And I'll tell you, if you were a cop on the street and you saw the devastation, the total disregard for human life in the way people are killing each other, you know, these are people that don't belong in society. We have to remove them from society. We, we have to try to rehabilitate them. We have to try to help them. But there are some people that are just, you know, so vicious and violent, they don't belong amongst us. So uh, this is something that I was trying to communicate in 2019 because we had record reductions in crime. We had under 300 homicides. I thought we were doing so well, but now it started creeping back up. And, and they were instituting new policies. They eventually, through de Blasio, disbanded the anti-crime unit. The city council, the woke city council, enacted the diaphragm law. The diaphragm law made it a crime for a police officer to restrict the diaphragm of an individual when they try to arrest them. Thankfully, that was thrown out. It was challenged constitutionally and, and thrown out. The city council then tried to attack police officers again and say that uh, we're eliminating something called qualified immunity. So that if a, law, if a lawsuit is filed against a police officer, mind you, everyone else gets immunity. The prosecutor, the judge, the politicians for writing the laws that cops are trying to enforce, they all get immunity. But they want to take it away from police officers. Why? Because they, they want to deter police officers from making the arrests. Also, in the furtherance of this decarceration, they enacted these new laws that made it so difficult uh, to uh, prosecute, to arrest and prosecute individuals, starting with the bail reform. Right. Bail reform made no sense. We did need bail reform. 
and the reform that we needed, common sense reform, was if you had an excessive bail situation, you needed a meaningful way to challenge it, not just being referred to another judge and they're all friends and why are you going to overturn me? You know, it's, 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 it was completely meaningless, the process that was in place. Uh, so bail reform needed to be done, but not the way they did it. They took all discretion away from a judge. Well, but you think they did it because the overcrowding in jails, but what's the problem with that is the court systems being backed up and everything taking too long and with evidence and discovery and... Well, yeah, you're onto something there. Discovery is an important issue, but it had nothing to do with overcrowding. Because if you remember, right now, I think the, the population on Rikers Island is like four or 5,000. It's, it's really low. During the 90s, when, when it was, crime was at its peak, it was like 22,000. You know, it's not overcrowding that they decided what to do then? this. The violence? I, I think I mean, it's, this it's this woke philosophy that, uh, you know, they want to cause as much disruption and mayhem as possible. Uh, and I, it, it's sad. But uh, they enacted the bail reform. They enacted discovery reform, uh, which require district attorneys to turn over everything within 15 days. Now, you know, you make collars, you take a car to the pound, you take drugs to the lab. You, there's all of that also chain of custody material that you have to turn over. Everywhere you go with department property, somebody has to sign for it. You count the money, uh, I'm giving it to you, you make a note of it. So all of that material has to be turned over in 15 days. It was impossible. Right. On top of which, you know, when you get to the scene of a violent crime, what happens? Tony Lee Blair, it's all about money. It's the all about signs. There's the dollars. Yeah, but you know, when you get to the scene of a crime, a violent crime, the first and, and biggest priority, aside from caring for the victim, is to find witnesses, people who are there. And what do they always tell you? You're not going to give my name to, See, but, to the defendant, are you? But um, with the new rules now, you know, vic I mean, the perps can visit the, the victims. If, if, the, yeah. if, if it took place at your apartment, they're coming over. They know where you live. Yeah, they, they know where you live. And even grand jury testimony, if you went, like we would tell people, ah, most cases don't even go to trial. They work out a plea, they negotiate 95% of cases. And if it does, it'll be down the road and we'll give you plenty of notice and, and protect you. Uh, the grand jury is a secret proceeding. No one will ever know that you testified. All gone. That stuff is turned over immediately. So you know, and I'm a defense attorney, I get this material. You know right away who fingered you, who ID'd you, who, you know. And you know, if you had a defendant with bad motives, you're in trouble. So I just want to point out both of these things were amended. The bail reform and the discovery reform because they were just so horrible when they first, the first draft that was passed, they had to be amended. It still needs further amendment, uh, but it just shows you how the, the hysteria that was involved. They were madly trying to change things overnight. But if you're a victim and you have a conversation with your neighbor and now your neighbor knows something, do they become a witness now? And now your neighbors are like on the list of, you know. On the hit list. That's <laughs> <laughs> not so, good. You know, so, you know, with, the, with this this tragedy of these officers being shot in the three two it, it, it it's so horrible um sometimes out of tragedy good things 
can come out of it. And I think we're starting to see these woke politicians realizing, hey, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe this is not good for us. But, you know, that whole defunding the police, everybody just jumped on the bandwagon. It's an election year. That's what they went with, you know, the crowd. Everyone's like, oh, defund the police. But now, you know, right before the pandemic, they wanted cops out of the subways. And now now everyone's afraid to be on the subways because of that. But you know what? The pandemic was like... It took everyone out of the city. There was you had to stay home. No one was traveling. Everyone was remote. But that's what stopped all these homeless from being on the subways mm-hmm. 24 hours a day. They there was like an unwritten rule that they only popped into the subways yeah. after after Both hours. hours. Yeah. But now it's like it's a free fall. It's I, I don't. I wouldn't take the subway in the daytime. I, I usually would take the subway, and that's that's partly why I put this extra poundage on. I used to just run out of my office, down to Union Turnpike, hit the subway, get to Manhattan, run out of the subway, run to court, back into the subway, head to Brooklyn. Like, we were on the go all the time. But now, I, I mean, it's just on top of being dirty, you know, because it is, I find it to be dirty as much as they say they clean these subways. I, I think it's dirty. And during a pandemic, the least contact with, you know, uh, other, uh, you know, dirty spaces. Like I, I believe I got COVID because I was I was in the uh, Queens Central Booking cell area, interviewing clients, and, and you know that's the last place anyone is going to clean, uh, is where the defense attorneys meet their clients. So. Um, I wanted to stay out of the subways for that reason as well. And I think a lot of people are. They're just avoiding the subways for the crime and also fear of catching, you know, some some virus, you know. So, I, I like I said, out of sometimes the tragedies, the good comes out of it. So I want to play this next video. It's, again, uh, Eric Adams, our new mayor. And God bless him. I, I hope he carries through. I think he's doing good. Uh, he's responding. This is baptism by fire. He's been, he's been thrown into the into the fire here. Uh, the one yesterday was a domestic incident. The one on Staten Island was a domestic incident. It keeps talking about the feeder of violence and what is causing uh, this violence uh, to take place in this city. And these men and women I met with earlier, they're on the front line of this crisis. And we know that this is a painful moment, but it's also a purposeful moment. How do we turn our pain into purpose. And when I was at Harlem Hospital uh, this afternoon, uh, speaking with the family and just letting them know we're praying for uh, their uh, son uh, to get through this moment. He's fighting, he's fighting hard, he's, he's, he's holding on, and we want to be there uh, for this family during this period of time. And I just want to tell all those on social media you know, I, I should have. I think that was the end of it. I should have started it. My heart goes it. out uh, to uh, Officer uh, Jason Rivera and Wilbert uh, Moya, uh, and their entire family on this horrific, horrific incident. Sitting in a hospital last night uh, with the police commissioner and other electeds who came out uh, together to state that no matter what philosophical differences we have. Uh, the killers assaulted our officers. And this is a battle between the killers and New Yorkers. 
And we are not going to lose that battle, and we're not going to be divided by their violence. And in fact, it's going to unite us like never before to be persistent in fighting this battle that's in front of us. And Officer Dominic Labretti, Kisan Pennant, Keith Wagenhauser, also officers who were shot, five officers uh, shot. Um, and the underlying causes. So let me just stop there. I, I'm so proud of Eric. I think, you know, he, his goal here is unification. I see the people around him uh, and his administration and public officials nodding their head. You know, this is a time for unity. This is an important time for us to come together as a city. It's not his cops that were, you know, in the case of Rivera killed and, and more injured. It's our cops. It's the city. We all suffer from this. And I, I think it's brilliant. It's wonderful. It's, it's music to my ears. And I just want to say to Eric, good job. Keep up the good work. Now, one of the things that he's called for later in that press conference, he talks about, you know, we need the community involved. We need the community to support our police, and we need to send a message to the bad guys, the bad actors involved, you know, in violence and committing crimes. Send a message that we are united, and we're going to fight this thing, and and we're going to the community will be involved and help the police work together with the police to make this a safe city again. And one of the things he's called for is that there's going to be a wake on Thursday night at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan. That's uh, another precinct I used to work in. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, cathedral over there. There's going to be a wake from 1 p.m. to 8 p.m. on Thursday for Officer Jason Rivera. And then on Friday will be the funeral. And I really hope, because he's calling for everyone to come out, everyone to come out, all New Yorkers to be there to support the family and the police officers who've lost a brother and a, you know, I, I, I just can't imagine, you know, the pain that they're going through right now. This kid is 22 years old, lost his life, and he was so proud to be a police officer. There was a, a UF-49 circulating that he wrote in the academy. Why uh, he wanted to become a police yeah. officer. Oh, it was so heartbreaking. It just, it just broke, broke your heart. And for all the right reasons, for all the right reasons, we talk about police officers. You know, we had Joe Sanchez on, and we talk about some cops take this job for the wrong reason. This kid took this job for all the right reasons. And tragically, now he lost his life. And I just want to add something that I just, you know, got notified of that the New York Post uh, just reported, and I'll just read from it. It says, the cop killer who shot two of New York's finest in a home apartment kept firing at the wounded officers even as they lay helplessly on the ground. A complete execution, caught on body cam, sources say. Career criminal LaShawn McNeil used an illegal Glock handgun with a high-capacity magazine to kill one of the officers and critically injure his partner but also had a loaded AR-type weapon stashed under his bed at the time. Law enforcement sources told the Post on Sunday, this guy was prepared to do damage. He had this, uh, you know, other gun. He lived in Maryland. The mother called him. 
to come back to New York to help with her other son. And uh, she told him, no guns, but, you know, what are you going to do? It was reported that this was a stolen gun, but uh, still, I, I, you know, I can just imagine the devastation that he was prepared to do. I don't know what his plan was, uh, you know, but, you know, I'm sure the investigation will reveal a lot more. You know, with the mother. He had all these conspiracy theory things going on with the government, too. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we want to move from there. I, I, I want to encourage everyone to keep the, their families in, in, their, in your prayers. And Officer, you know, Wilbur Moore is fighting for his life right now. Hopefully he pulls through. He's 27. He's young. He's, he's strong. Uh, so we're praying for him and... and uh, you know, if you can, if you're in the New York uh, metropolitan area, Thursday's going to be the wake for Officer Jason Rivera, and then Friday, the funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Um, so turning now to the uh, Gabby Petito case, there's there's been new developments there. The first one that drew my attention was there was that report done from the Price City Police Department, a review of the August 12th domestic violence incident that was subject to so much scrutiny and criticism. And I think this is a perfect backdrop to use for that because, you know, as we discussed, domestic violence is is the one of the most dangerous jobs police officers can encounter. And you never, ever want to let your guard down uh, because of instances like this. There was no indication that uh, he was armed or, or going to come out of there shooting the way he did. And, and suddenly he, he just came out of the door blasting. So, you know, these officers, if you look at what they did and how they proceeded, they separated the parties. There were four officers on the scene. Two of them were primarily maintaining security while the other two officers were doing the interviews and the questioning. You gotta remain safe. And, and it was so important to keep things safe. But also they were very thorough in the way that they you know, handle this this job, and I, I, but, I was but, so impressed with that. But you know what? Domestic violence cases, when, when, when you respond to them, they're usually in an apartment, in a house, but this was a rolling car stop. I mean, the first time I've ever pulled somebody over and it turned out to be a domestic violence incident, I was like, what do I do? It was a couple, they were fighting, they were swerving, we pulled them over, thinking you know, something else. We were thinking maybe Dewey. They get out of the car, they're still arguing. She, it was a passenger van, like a commercial van. There weren't any seats back there. She was kicking him while he was driving and he just grabbed her by the hair to get her to stop kicking him. But while he was doing that, whether she pulled her head back or he pulled too hard, her braids were on the floor. So now who do you arrest? In New York, it's primary aggressor. Most of the states is primary yeah. aggressor. He didn't have any injuries. Could I let him go? I, if they, they, they lived in Brooklyn. We were in front of Madison Square Garden. They would have fought all the way down, all the way back to East New York, and probably you know killed mm -hmm. somebody on the road the, the way he was driving. So because she didn't, he didn't have any injuries. She had her braids on the the floor of the car, and she's got like uh, red marks on her head. So I, we had to arrest him. Did I feel bad about arresting him? Yeah, I did because I I he I don't think he was the primary aggressor, but.
but because of the the braids he had to go you know that's interesting the parallels between this case that you had and the petito case because mm -hmm. Just like you mentioned, you know, that the grabbing of uh, her, her braids was yeah. a way to try to get her to stop hitting him because she was kicking him, right, or yeah. something? He was, he's driving and she's kicking him. He was, he was driving and just trying to get some distance away from her, but how do you do that in a car, a moving car? Similarly, what Gabby said to the police is that, you know, they were asking, did he hit you, did he strike you, did he punch you? And she said, no, he grabbed my face. And he was telling me to calm down. Do you, do you see the parallel yeah. there? So I, I, I think, you know, ironically, they were both in kind of a similar situation. And, uh, yeah. But in your case, you made the arrest. Now, do you think, obviously, you made the arrest and they had to go through the system. In New York City, if you make an arrest for domestic violence, they go through the system. Right. They don't get out till the next day, so there's plenty of cool-off time. Do you think that may have prevented further escalation? Or could you have talked them down? Like by the time you were done handling the job, did they seem to calm down? Uh, you know what? It's, it's hard to tell because, you know, sometimes you respond to domestic violence. As soon as you show up, now they would just want to fight more. It's like when they, they're fighting, but you get between them, and now they want to start swinging. So it's, it's yeah, because now they know they're essentially don't hold safe. Me back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's terrible. I mean, domestic violence—it's it, such a tragic, you know. Uh, one of the things I want to bring out about you know what's happening and what what we're seeing. You know, should we go to the report and just segue into that? Yeah, sure. Why don't we well, go to the let's report? Let's say hi to some people in the chat. Stace on the case, Kathy Bates, hi, how you doing? Jen Lowe, Dawn Marie, the usual suspects. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lieutenant Pranzo, Richella, hi, welcome back. Shelwyn Softner, Kathy Bates, everybody's here. Aunt BB, Laura McKenzie, how you guys doing? Amber Buck, and um, Misty Kate, thanks for sticking by. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, we, we love this community. It's really great. All right. Where are we going now? Hey, so why don't we go to the report? Because there were a couple of things that kind of jumped out. Yeah, there. a couple of things stood out on this report. Hold on. Can you hit that? Or do I have to? There we go. Oh, we're in. Okay. City of Moab, Utah. This is the statement on the investigative review of the August 12th Petito laundry incident. You know, here's some of the things like, you know, kind of jumped out at me. One of the points of it, well, first of all, I just want to show you, this came from, it wasn't an internal report of their own. They farmed it out to a neighboring department, the Price City Police Department. It was Captain Brendan Ratcliffe who did this well, review. Because, you know, the Moab Police Department, they, they only got 15 sworn officers, once a chief, once an assistant chief, so that leaves, yeah. you know. Maybe two on, on a... A tour? A sergeant, a lieutenant, and, you know, yeah. who knows? There's not much, uh, not, not a lot of resources. But similarly, the Price City Police Department, also a very small department, mm -hmm. right? A little bit bigger. I think they have, like, maybe 18. Yeah, so, so I think that was appropriate to have a, a, a similarly situated department, have them review, you know, they're, they're obviously faced with the same statutory laws, you know, domestic violence laws. And their policies as departments are probably similar. Right. So it was appropriate to bring someone in to give a review. 
And but here's where, mm, so let, let's talk about this. So he made some findings, and here it says made several. The officers made several unintentional mistakes that stem from the fact that the officers failed to cite Miss Petito for domestic violence. I can see that, you know. I when I watched this, I could have defended it, you know, anyway, just like. Officer Pratt said he, to Robbins when he left, he goes, look, I'll back you up. I'll support if you want to go the whole nine yards. Yeah, but you, through. you could Monday morning quarterback this, this thing all you want. You have the luxury of sitting here uh, cross-referencing, like, um, the dispatch rec recordings, the car stop, the, the, the paperwork. You know, these guys had... An hour there, and everyone's complaining about them being there an hour. One of the guys, Robbins, he only had what three months on the job. Three four months, months on the job. Three months. Pratt was his training officer, so he left him like, you know, leeway to to make his own decision as to what's going on. He was reaching the end of his training. Yeah, he was um, in the last phase of yeah. his training. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad Lieutenant Pranzo's here because here's something that struck me. You know, it says additional training in domestic violence investigation, which who couldn't use more training? You know, that's always appropriate because right. it is probably one of the most dangerous jobs to handle. So and I think part of, the, too, so. part of the investigation part is also maintaining tactics and safety. So I th I, I'm all for training. I love that. Additional you, legal training. You don't know how often they go to training. Maybe every like year they have to go to like a refresher like the NYPD has. Yeah, with such a small department, I actually don't know how that works with a smaller department. Like we were huge in yeah. our department, so we had units and charger training, you know, that... Uh, I was looking, trying to find something on like what the academy was. So yeah. I don't, I can't find anything online as to how long their academy is or even if they have one so they also recommend additional legal training to ensure officers understand state laws and statutes which i thought then it, it goes down to here um that a statement was never obtained from the original 911 call that's kind of important and it was a lot of confusion even the attorney that wrote the letter the complaint to the department she misspoke when she alleged that the second 911 caller was never interviewed. There was only one 911 caller. Only one 911. There was a 911 caller. He made the call. Driving by, he saw it. Now this is this. It, this matters because he said he saw Brian slapping Gabby. Now that's specific, an open hand. When NYPD respond to like incidents, assaults, and stuff. When you separate the two, you ask them, well, if he hit you, was it an open hand or a closed fist? It makes a difference. So sure. him saying that he saw uh, Brian slapping her is, is significant. Because that's so. an open hand. Yeah. And then, like, when they actually pulled him over, they asked Brian, well, what was going on? He was trying to get her away from, from him because she had a phone in his hand. So, you know, him pushing her away moving at that speed it looks like slapping i'm not trying to defend anybody here i'm just trying to like Mine. explain it how the officers saw this also you know you're not doing this in a vacuum you had another witness right. who gave a detailed statement about what he saw 
and his conclusions, you know, he's the best person, in my opinion, to give. He was actually standing right. there, right? He was outside of the moonlight. The moonflower. Moonflower. And he he witnessed Well, this. he didn't call 911 because he said he wanted to help, but he had noticed that somebody else already called 911. So he goes into the store and goes about his day. I guess the 911 caller, he leaves because he's not from Moab. He was just probably driving through. So now when uh, the witness comes out of the store, he sees the second officer because the first officer, I think, he just responded to, to the car stop mm-hmm. or on the way or wherever the van was last seen. So he stops to talk to the witness. And I, I don't know how much time passed before the first officer had put over the radio that he made the stop in front of um, the Arches National Park. So he tells, Officer Pratt tells the witness, listen, I have to go. Could I get your number? Would you mind giving a statement later? So he gets his number and he takes off, and then that's where the video starts. So I just want to address this. Uh, you know, this is one of the findings. They said uh, the city of Moab believes our officers showed kindness, respect, and empathy in their handling of this incident. I mean, you can't ask them more than that. You know, when, when you have cops that really are there to do the job, they're not just, you know, fluffing this to get through it or just grabbing somebody to make activity and, you know, I got a collar. Yeah, you're going. They really put their heart into this to try to get the right result. And I, I'm glad to see that, that it reflects, you know, what these officers, you know, brought to the table. They also said we will, we also will implement added and ongoing training and testing to ensure that the officers understand policies and procedures. If Lieutenant Pranzo is there, I would love to hear from him. When did you ever see testing? Testing. I've never received another test after graduating the academy. We had the justification test that everyone had to pass. Al Cooper. (laughs) Had to get 100 on. You would, of course, have to qualify for like firearms every year when you go uh, yeah, to the range. Yeah, but then that just means you take officers off the street. Or yeah, that, that, that's you... just a proficiency, you know, but here, testing to ensure that the officers understand policies and procedures. So what, what would happen if you fail a test? You have to be retrained or, you know, but is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I, I, I don't know. I mean... For such a small department, I, I don't see how, how they're going to do this. You know, you're going to sit one guy down and test him while his partner's on patrol. Uh, I don't know, but it was interesting to see that testing. You test them on the field. You run into them. Hey, what do you think about this? <laughs> what would you do? Yeah, yeah, maybe how scenarios or, or just testing about, you know, and I see why because... I don't want to fault Robbins. He had three months on the job, but they were asking him later in the report, they asked him about the statute and, you know, what does the law require? And he he really didn't know uh, and actually, you know, misquoted it. Uh, So I think that was something that may have resulted in this need for further testing but again he had three months on the job he was still learning i I think so too i'm not backing down from that i I don't think 
if they got arrested, I don't think it would have changed the course of anything. Maybe delayed it a no. couple of days. That's it. You know, I think everything would have just happened the same way. So on this page, it, it, you know, it was very helpful because it gave you their background. So Officer Pratt has worked for the Moab City Police Department intermittently since July of 2018. This included part-time employment and full-time employment. Officer Pratt returned full-time with Moab City Police Department in December 2020. Officer Pratt has approximately 16 years of law enforcement experience. At the time of this incident, Officer Pratt has the, was the acting field training officer for Officer Robbins. This guy, I would have never thought that he had 16 years on the job. There was no sense of him being a hairbag no, and assuming all. anything. He left no stone unturned. He called the boss. He read the statute. He called the witness. He interviewed both. This wasn't even his job. Right. He, he interviewed both officer. parties, you know, and then discussed it at length with his boss, with his, with Robbins. And then he even gave Robbins, you know, it's always the senior guys, you know, who are, who are stepping on the younger guys. Well, that's that's another thing, too, because the, the way it works is Robbins was the, re, was the officer. It's his job. Right. He's the officer on record. Yeah. So Pratt is the backup officer. The two park police, they're backup officers. Everyone's like, well, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? You know what? It's Robin's investigation. It's Robin's job, and Pratt was his his direct backup and supervisor, like training officer. Mm -hmm. So those other officers, I, I can tell you, we all appreciate that they show up. We love when extra people show up, but when they come up, they're not going to step in and take over the investigation. They're there to provide safety and security for the whole well, scene. I don't think the park rangers stepped in because... They were still on the road, so that's probably still like yeah. th that's not federal property. jurisdictional. As soon as they turned in, if they went into like arches, the entrance of arches, then maybe it would have been the park ranger's job. But it came over. Yeah, but I think the job itself happened. You know, that's yeah. where the jurisdiction would lie. But then turning here, Officer Robbins was hired in May of 2021. Don't forget this happened in August. That's three months later. Three months. May of 2021 with the Moab City Police Department had no prior law enforcement experience. Not that that's a terrible thing, but, you know, it's something to take into account. At the time of the incident, Officer Robbins was in the final phase of his field training program. When it comes to law enforcement, you get the academy training, you get training on the law, a procedure, then you go out in the field and apply that procedure and you learn those practical skills about how to you know approach people address people um say you know all safety and tactical stuff and then of course the paperwork but moab it's not like it's a tourist town so most of their crimes are like break-ins you know you leave your Property stuff at stuff. a, at a yeah. campsite you come back and now your stuff is broken into or missing People go to the beginning of a trail, forget to lock their cars, and now you're missing stuff from the car. How many? I don't think they responded to a lot of domestic violence incidents. So I just want to point this out. The interviews were all done. Uh, they were recorded, and it was the issuance of the Garrity Statement of Rights, and that's our equivalent of GO15. This yeah. is comes from uh, a court decision. Um, 
Garrity versus Jersey that says this is what we call use immunity. Um, any statements that they make, since you're compelled, they can assert the Fifth Amendment and say, look, I'm not talking. They're compelled to give these statements. Police officers cannot say, I'm not answering a question. They have to. But under Garrity, if the Garrity rights are, are provided, the issuance of Garrity was statements of rights, what Garrity does is it protects those statements from being used against you in a criminal, uh, subsequent criminal trial. So not that this would have led to a criminal trial, because I think they acted 100% appropriately, but it's, it's a protection afforded to police officers because they, unlike us, that we can say, look, I'm not talking, I have nothing to say to you. They can't. Police officers have to answer questions from their superiors. Uh, it's compelled testimony, and the law has carved out a use immunity for that where you cannot use it in a subsequent criminal trial because you didn't afford the officer his Fifth Amendment right not uh, to speak and to remain silent. So that's important. I'm glad that Garrity was uh, uh, instituted in that case. Um, yeah, this is good. I, I liked this statement. It said, on a part-time basis, I have spent months reviewing the case and have been provided the luxury of being able to pause, rewind, fast-forward, take notes, etc. This same luxury is not afforded in the grand majority of police investigations. The officers in this case had about 75 minutes while I've had an unlimited amount of time. While I have the reports and recordings from this case, I will not uh, pretend to know that I have the same perception the officers had while investigating the case. I, I was glad to see that. I, I think that was I'm appropriate. I'm glad he said that. Yeah, because, you know, he, he recognizes you know, when he's reviewing this, he's looking at all the paperwork, he's stopping and starting and reviewing. The cops didn't have that luxury. They had to make a decision. I thought they had uh, 75 minutes. It's a long time to handle that job. But if you remember, Robbins got a call, and he got another call that he had to handle, and he actually offered no, it. Pratt had to call. I'm sorry, Pratt. And Pratt offered to Robbins, hey, listen, do you want to take this call and I'll clean this up? Or do you want... Uh, do you want to continue this and handle it? So I, I really just have a lot of respect for this guy, Pratt, with his 16 years on the job. It was his call to actually say, hey, listen, kid, this is your job. I'm leaving, or I'm taking over this thing. You take this other job. Right. He's the senior guy on, on the, the job. They were probably the two, only two officers working that day. But one of them had to do it, and he gave Robbins... He extended that courtesy to Robbins because he knew what a difficult choice this was and that the job coming up would have been similarly difficult. So Robbins were like six in one, half a dozen the other. So, uh, But I really respect this guy Pratt for what he did, the way he conducted himself. And I got to tell you, I would want these cops in my neighborhood to respond to my you know, calls or my family or my daughter or my... I really, and that's the ultimate test. If you're happy with the performance that they provided, um, so I don't want to drag this thing on. This thing is rather lengthy. Like a hundred and two And we're not going to go through all of that. I did, I just really enjoyed reading this. There's a lot of 
good material that came out of this. It's mm-hmm. online. If you go to Moab Police Department, it's you could find it, the report there. Yeah. All right. So I'm not going to belabor this, but I I wanted to just go to the conclusion, which is page thirty. Thirty-two. Thirty-two. Yeah. Uh, there were a number of charges. I I would say that were unfounded, but I was a little surprised at the ones that were uh, founded or sustained. That's what they did. Like, uh, yeah, these were, okay. Well, I'm not going to go through all of them. I don't want to belabor this thing. Um, It really was interesting, and I encourage everyone who's following this case to read it. It's done by a professional. uh, Captain Radcliffe has been around a while. He's He's uh, highly respected, and I thought he did a good job. Um, the other thing that... Oh, I'm sorry. Leave that up. I'm sorry. The, uh, the other thing that we wanted to touch on was that the FBI... Can you see that? Is that up there? Yeah. The FBI Denver provided a final investigative update on Gabrielle Petito case. So um, I was a little confused by it. This came out on the 21st. And the first line, just right out of the the box, was a little confusing. It said, yesterday, the family of Gabby Petito met with the FBI uh, at the Tampa field office as the investigation will be closed in the near future. What are they waiting for? Hello? What? Why is that? And after reading this, I went to the docket, of course, you know, on PACER to see what the federal case looks like, and the federal case is still open. Um, but it seemed, I don't understand this statement here. You know, Brian's dead. It was determined the cause and manner of death. It was suicide, gunshot wound to the head, self-inflicted. They indicate here that a gun was found. They also indicate that he uh, made some statements or notes in his journal claiming responsibility for Gabby Petito's death. Uh, you know what what more are we waiting for why are we we holding up with this thing so you know just highlighting this here it said all logical investigative steps have been concluded in this case Uh, the investigation did not identify any other individuals other than brian laundry directly involved in the tragic death of gabby petito i thought that was interesting directly involved so does that mean they have other people who were indirectly involved that they identified or maybe there was just not enough evidence to say that they were directly involved i i don't really understand what that means um but i am confident i don't know about you i am confident that they are coming to a conclusion with this investigation and from what they're indicating to us i don't need to see the notebook myself they're saying that there were uh, statements that Brian made claiming responsibility. Not that that is dispositive at all, because if I found evidence to the contrary, the evidence would trump that, and I would follow the evidence. But uh, it is a good indication when he makes this representation that he's claiming responsibility, and then he apparently ended his life with a, a gunshot wound to the head, so I'm satisfied. I know there's a number of people who still believe that Brian is alive, uh, you know, and, and, you know, this case is not over. 
based on what I see here in this report, and I'm the defense attorney, I mean, we work on this kind of stuff all the time. I'm always looking for doubt and reasonable doubt and looking for other alternative theories. I've always felt that Brian was the most likely suspect, but I never wanted to shut that door to make sure that he gets a fair opportunity to defend himself. But from what I see here, I'm, I'm convinced that Brian is uh, the responsible party and that uh, this case should be closed. So I'm just curious what everyone else thinks about that. Have you, uh, you know, seen any uh, conspiracy theorists there? And <laughs> I don't think there's any doubt. But now the questions are going to be, did the parents know? Did the parents... <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to be the next thing. You know, do we go after the parents? And I, I honestly just don't see it. I mean, people just hated the parents for not responding to the petitos and i get it i mean i i would have lost my mind if if i'm calling my daughter's boyfriend's uh parents and they're not responding i mean they would have got a visit from me and it wouldn't have been a happy visit but you can't just invent crimes because you don't like people but some people need like a face to the to the evil like where's brian brian did it and now after he's turned up dead then they went after Bertolino, and then he's like, eh, whatever. So now after that, now they're after the, the Moab police. Come on, cut these guys a break. It, it, I don't yeah. think they did a bad job. I think they did a great job. And Robin's not arresting uh, Gabby. You know how hard it is to arrest somebody that's never been arrested? The mere mention of her maybe getting a citation and having a court date, she was like, no, please. Just write me some parking tickets. I'll pay them, please. Yeah. It's a tough call. Plus, she's 22. What was what would a night in jail gonna do for her? She was like crying already, and there was no way she was going. To, maybe she would have seen a, a judge the next day, but then Brian would have to go fill out paperwork to get the the stay away order vacated. He would have filled out paperwork and maybe seen a judge because they were like. The office closes at 12, so if that doesn't happen, if she doesn't see a judge, she's going to be in there Saturday and Sunday until Monday. Yeah. And then where do they go? They're not, they don't have an address. Maybe if one of them lived nearby, okay, but, like, how do you? And then we don't know what happens the next day or when they met up again. You know, there's so many critics of, of these officers that they should have made an arrest, they should have made an arrest, and, and I, I still defend these officers for a number of reasons. I, I think they made a judgment call. It could have went either way. It was that close because don't forget, you know, a lot of people don't realize this. As a police officer, you make an assessment of probable cause. That's what we need as police officers to make an arrest. It's a very low standard of proof, but if you're looking at the totality of the evidence and you believe it's more likely than not that a crime was committed, there you go. But as police officers, if we lose probable cause at any time, we have to immediately release. It rarely happens, but sometimes and it ends in avoided arrest because of information that comes to light exculpating the individual that you thought was guilty and you had probable cause and then lost your probable cause based on these new facts. 
I just want to suggest, when Officer Pratt did his investigation, before he even asked about Gabby's intent and what her intent was with those injuries, he had probable cause of a crime. He had a witness uh, who told him what he saw. He had Brian who confirmed it. And Gabby herself said she hit him. So that totality of circumstances, and you're allowed to make reasonable inferences from the facts that you're presented with. When Gabby says, I did strike him, I did hit him, and he says she had the cell phone, that's what caused it. You can make the inference, well, hitting him with a cell phone, I'm inferring from that she was trying to hurt him and intending to hurt him. But when he asked her the direct question, and, and I love the way he asked it, he made, he made sure that she realized this is an important question. You must think about it before you answer it. Did you intend to cause him uh, an, a physical injury or impairment? And she said, no. And then he said, what did you intend? Like he didn't just stop there. He took it a step further. Well, what did you intend? I just wanted him to stop saying, calm down, or, you know, and, and she gave an explanation. In my mind, when he says that, and he's satisfied that she didn't intend, where he made a reasonable inference that striking him with the cell phone is something that maybe she intended to cause an injury, now it's been negated. So... In that instance, I don't think he had probable cause. I mean, it was that close where he could justify saying, well, listen, she had no uh, intention. When asked, uh, even Brian said, you know, no, I'm not hurt. I'm okay. No pain. No that's, pain. That's in the and that's in the statute. Yeah. That's one of the definitions that it has to be, you know, pain. And uh, if he's saying I wasn't in pain, then he's fine. Ironically... When Gabby was asked about her injury and she said, he grabbed my cheek and I think he cut me, uh, you know, I have a cut because I feel like it's burning there. I mean, that was like right there as, as an injury, a physical injury. But in this report, not this report, the, the, um, the investigative review, they said that the cut was on the inside of her mouth. How did they know that? That wasn't... I think that was the lawyer that alleged that, but that was wrong well I, I shouldn't say it was wrong but it was incorrect as to what gabby was saying gabby was saying that he grabbed her face and was squeezing you know her face and she felt the burning uh, i think it was the outside of her cheek right. so you know I, I i know so many people criticize these offices but here's another philosophical uh, point that i want to make you know we as Americans, we have so much freedoms and liberties that are protected by the Constitution. You know, we've gone through a lot of these constitutional protections. There are rights, and it keeps the government in check. And I always get nervous when people start inviting the government further and further encroaching into our personal lives. Now, in a case of domestic violence, the must-arrest situation... I don't have a problem with that because if someone commits a crime, they should be arrested. And it's really a fallacy because police officers don't have discretion when someone commits a crime. They only have discretion when there's a violation, a lower offense. 
But there's that thing too with the primary aggressor, and then it says a, a sentence later, primary physical aggressor. So yes, yes. So, so ironically, where people think, oh, this is a must arrest statute, it's a must. -arrest. Police officers are never allowed to not arrest somebody for a crime. If you commit a crime, you you're supposed to arrest them. That's your duty, your obligation. It's only not considered a must arrest because it's like an ER. The police operate like an e, uh, a hospital emergency room operates. They take the priority job first. So if something else should happen and this is a minor situation, you can move on to the bigger situation and handle that. It, it, it's not that you must arrest, you know, as far as resources go, but Ordinarily, police officers can use their discretion not to issue a summons or a traffic offense, but they don't have discretion when it comes to a crime. So it's really a fallacy that people misconstrue. Police officers are supposed to make arrests whenever there's a crime, but I have no problem with that. The problem I have is when people are, are crying out for and screaming out for more government intrusion into their lives. Because I'll tell you what happens when you invite the government into your life, they're there to stay and they're gonna stay until they're ready to leave. This case, if there was an arrest, would have continued and if somebody felt that there was a need for more services and more, you know, first the full stay away order protection, you can have no contact, no social media, no phone contact, anything. So, you know, I think a lot of it is well-intentioned, but I think, you know, part of it, you got to think about what you're doing. You're inviting the government into your life. But see, a lot of people are like, well, why didn't they arrest Brian and Gabby? You can't because on a cross-complaint, it'll be dismissed before you're even done with the paperwork. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, think about what you're, what you're doing when you arrest both parties. Both parties are entitled to a lawyer. Both parties have their Fifth Amendment and Sixth Amendment right to a lawyer, but a, a Fifth Amendment right to say nothing because anything they say can be used against them. So how do you put Brian on the stand to talk about Gabby hitting him and injuring him, and then when he's cross-examined, he can't take the Fifth. He's going to have to answer those questions because any trier of fact, if he does decide, oh, I'm not going to answer these questions, they're going to say, well, wait a minute, you lose credibility. And, you know, so they both are in a situation where they're not going to testify. Their lawyers would say, don't testify. And the case would end up being dismissed anyway. So that's why the primary aggressor is included. I'm glad you brought that up. That's why that's in there, because you can't effectively prosecute both. And they would rather you take the primary aggressor even if the other one also committed a crime, but focus on the primary aggressor because it's it's almost impossible to to prosecute both at the same time. Ange, you, are you going to show that video? Of the car Which spot? one? Oh, wait a second. We're, Just shut, close that, exit I'll out. Close that. Yeah, that was a good. We just took a small clip of the car stop that we wanted to show. You have it? Yes. Okay. This is Officer Pratt talking to Robbins. Well, you started to bring up and redact that part. I did? Yeah. Oh. No, he's not. Okay. 
better go on that. You got this? I'm making this decision. I'm gonna side him. I'm gonna go okay. all through the first. Would you feel more comfortable here. handling that guy? If you're more comfortable, well, I'm. It's six one way, half dozen the other. I mean, it's a headache whether I go left or it's a headache whether I go Look, right. Another option is to not charge them but separate them for the night. If they find themselves together again, what is it to you? You separated them. You provided for his safety. If he doesn't have enough sense to stay away and you, you got him separated, it's on him. You can separate him and say, don't, don't let us pull off till tomorrow. If, if they don't let it pull off and we hear about it, we'll hear about it. They're camping in the park tonight. And if there's some fighting going on, well, you already was, Mr. Nice Guy. You already gave him a chance. What you can't do, by law, is separate someone and say, if we hear from you again, we're going to arrest one of you. Because then if one of them really needs help, they may not call police and get help. The law says you cannot, literally, you may not say, we get more problems with you guys tonight. One of you is going to you can't threaten like that. Right. It's true because it stops them from wanting to call the police to get off. Does that make sense? Right. So go full or nothing or in between and separate them and kind of give them the nod, the wink, like, hey, you know, just stay separate. It's up to you. I'm going to go handle that. You got very capable help with you here, and I trust you. Mm -hmm. That was excellent, right? I mean, can you ask for more from him? And he's actually explaining the policy behind that. You can't threaten him. Hey, if we come back again, we're going to arrest somebody. You can't because you're deterring people from calling 911. Right. He just explained it so well. He essentially told them, look, you can go either way with this. It's, it's that close. And, uh, and Robin stepped up, said, no, I'm going to handle this. I just want to say something. With with all these um, live streams about this car stop going back from when they were still looking for Gabby, everyone's like, I hate these cops. They're so chummy chummy with Brian. They're not. What Brian's doing with his goofy smile, that's just nervousness. When you pull somebody, I've seen it a thousand times. Yeah. You pull someone over, they don't know how to act. Now they're all goofy because they're trying, you know, they're just trying to, like, get used to this, like, getting pulled over. And what happens now, it's in the report, too, that one of the cops was like, oh, you're telling, like, personal information about your, your wife. You know what? Just because it's not on the on the gun belt doesn't mean that your voice is not a tool. That's probably the yeah. best tool. That's so important. You know, it's really important for police officers when they come to these domestic violence situations is to just lower the temperature. Right. Now, there's any number of tactics you can use and you assess the individual you're dealing with and how you're going to do it. They're mad that, you know, the officer's like, oh, why is he telling her his personal information? How do you even know it's true? He can say anything just to get her to the level of being comfortable talking. Yeah, and I think it was appropriate. I think it was a great job. Honestly, because when you come to a domestic violence, and I'm telling you, this is what cops think about. They think about if this goes bad, what would happen and how devastating and Officer Pratt communicated that in his interviews, you know, how upset he is about what happened and, you know, how it ended up. If he could change it, he would. He actually said, if, if I w even thought about that, I would, 
I would have followed him on, off duty just mm-hmm. to, you know. He would have taken a vacation just to follow him. Yeah, he was so more. conscientious, 16 years on the job, and just still, you know, at, at full potential, working hard, trying to do the right thing, do the best thing. And, you know, one of the other things, I don't know if you, you share this, but, you know, when I was new on the job and starting to arrest people, the power to arrest people to take their freedom away from them, take them out of where they are, whether it's the car, their home, at work, out in the street, you're removing them. Although temporarily you're removing them from society and you're putting them in jail and you're you're sending them downtown, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. It's an awesome power that you have and you got to respect that. And I, I just reflected on that. I was 20 years old when I came on the job, and I was just like, what? I'm taking this guy in, and I, I got to make sure I got this right. I, you know, And I felt for these people, uh, you know, the ones that, in, especially in these domestics, because we have no discretion. You have to come. I remember my first domestic incident was a doctor up. I was in FTU4 on Madison Avenue. I was Murray the Cop on Madison <laughs> Avenue. And, uh, you know, very ri- it's the richest precinct in the city. And I responded to a domestic situation and uh, had this old-time sergeant in there, and he was just disgusted with the way domestic violence response was happening. And it worked out where both parties had orders of protection. At that time, that was a possibility. Now you can't because they would just separate them. They can't cohabitate with an order of protection. But at that time, you could. And the order of protection would specify certain things. You can't drink alcohol. You can't, you know, whatever. And the sergeant was just beside himself. Wait a minute. You both have orders of protection against each other? He was just, like, blown away by this. And we ultimately ended up arresting the husband, who was a doctor, a physician, and he was also a pistol license holder. We had to take his firearm, and it took him months to get that, you know, once the case was resolved, to get his firearm back. It is such a hassle. When you take someone away, you disrupt their lives immensely. And and that was like my first experience with the domestic violence. But seeing the disruption, he had to hire a lawyer. He hired a lawyer for the the criminal case and also for the pistol license. I had to go down there and testify at the pistol license hearing. It's such an enormous, enormous disruption in someone's life. You better make that right. And when these cops looked at this and they looked at the merits and the equity of what was happening, they said, look, you know, this is, you know, we're going to cause them so much hassle and hardship over this. I don't really think Gabby's in a position to to really hurt Brian. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think there's a fear of further well, violence. One of the things for you to separate them is just in case they get back into it. But for not citing them, there's... They're not gonna. It, they don't look like they were gonna get into a bigger fight down the road. It, it was. It would have been over, if if you know. But anyway, I, I I just think you know the respect for people, for their lives, and you know looking at their situation, the totality of it, unknowable at that point. I don't think anyone can say they knew at that point watching that video, that Brian was gonna kill her. You know, that there was no way to tell. 
And there's also no way to tell what would have happened after, you know, if he did make an arrest, what would have happened? Maybe he would have killed us sooner, you know? I mean, who knows? But I, I think it's horrible that these officers came under such fire, uh, and I'm glad that at least in this report they stuck up for them, although they did substantiate some of the allegations. They did stick up for them in a way. Uh, I thought they should have went a little further because we we have such important rights and freedoms, and when you take somebody's liberty away from them, you disrupt their lives uh, so drastically you better make sure you got it right. And if you have an opportunity like this where, you know, the merits could go either way, take the freedom way. That's the way I would look at it. You know, you, you really separated them. You prevented the imminent harm. Certain time where people have to have personal responsibility. And that goes back to the gun violence. I can't stand these woke politicians that constantly want to blame the gun manufacturers and the, the lawful gun owners for the actions of the people who should be held accountable, like this guy who killed uh, Officer Jason uh, Rivera. And as the Pulse reported, he continued to fire at them after they were already suffering from their injuries and continued to shoot at them. So, uh, again, personal responsibility. We can't solve every problem. We, you know, the police intervened here. They separated them. I thought they did a good job. They spent 75 minutes with them. That's more than I've ever spent at a domestic violence job. And I thought it was a good outcome. They separated them. They were calm. They relaxed them. I don't think there was a fear of further harm coming at that imminent moment. But we can't babysit people. There has to be personal accountability on both sides. They're both intelligent people. But you know what? Gabby had a chance. She, I think in one of the clips of the body cam, she was in the back of the car, and she, the, the park ranger said she's calling her, her parents. She never made that call. I, I, you know what? At 22, 23 years old, when I was 23, I got pulled over at Santa Barbara speeding. You think the first thing I did was call my parents? They would have killed me over the phone. <laughs> we didn't have cell phones back then. She would have just reached over the landline and just choked me out. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, look, it's tragic. It's tragic what happened. But to blame these officers that they could have changed the outcome, it was completely unknowable. It was completely unknowable, just like... The officers in the 3-2 that walked down that hallway, they had no idea that this guy with a high-capacity uh, uh, um, automatic was semi-automatic, came out blasting without saying a word. They had no way of knowing that. So uh, we hope you enjoyed this. Do you have any further uh, comments you want to throw in there? Well, no. No? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just tell you something funny, though. Oh. <laughs> I responded to a domestic incident. There was this was in um, one of these apartment buildings by the river downtown in Seventh Precinct. I get in there. They had this eye level view of the bridge. I mean, and they had the shades all rolled up. I walked in there. They are still yelling at each other. I'm looking at this view. I'm like, what are you guys fighting about? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? But it's crazy because sometimes you respond to these jobs. And all of a sudden, nobody wants to press charge. Oh, no, I don't want this. I don't want this. But then now you, 
you leave and then you come back to the same exact job, maybe the same day, maybe the next day. Yeah. And you're like, okay, somebody's got to leave. And then they leave and then, you know, it's all good. But, but that paperwork goes to the domestic violence officer and they do the follow-up. You think Moab would with 15 sworn officers even have a domestic violence uh, um, office or department? You know, I just, lastly, as a last thought on my end, just thinking about what happened in the 3-2 with uh, Officer Rivera and uh, Officer Moro, um, Mora, there was a lot of talk on YouTube specifically about social workers responding with police officers social workers are better capable to handle these things social workers uh are, are better capable of talking to people and and uh diffusing situations how do you think a social worker would have ended up because if they were there for that purpose they would have been the first ones down the hallway and been blasted right you know without a vest without protection without a firearm so you know, I think people should rethink that. We said that all along. Putting social workers and radio cars going to these jobs is insane. But how would that work? I mean, maybe someday you don't get work. any domestic violence calls or any EDPs. So, so what do you do? You keep them in the station house? Could you imagine that on a midnight? Can we get a social worker yeah, to good respond? Luck. <laughs> good luck. Yeah, that, uh, you know, I, I, I think that was just another... You know, knee-jerk reaction, you know, demeaning the police and, and their skills and capabilities uh, in in light of uh, what a social worker can do. I'm not saying that maybe as an after fact. I think I even said it on one of the lives that I think it would be a great idea to put a whole bunch of them in central booking. So when we arrest the offender and bring them down there, they could sit down there for hours. See, but I don't think that's what... They want them there on the scene to talk down an EDP. Or, but, you know, you're still going to need an officer with them because if they have a weapon, what do you do? Yeah, but they're not just talking about EDPs. They're talking about DV jobs because the, the consensus amongst the community is that cops are stupid. Cops don't understand domestic violence uh, in spite of the fact that we're on the front line responding to these calls time and time again. Uh, we see how people react and and see how unpredictable sometimes people react. So, uh, you know, lesson learned. Uh, I think this is a perfect example of what that would look like if they had social workers in the radio car going to these jobs. Big mistake. Just like that other silly thing that they were doing, like, oh, Gabby was trying to do the hand signal. Mm. Making a fist at a cop during a domestic violence call is a serious mistake. And for the very reason that we're talking about, they're so unpredictable. You don't know if, if the man or the woman is going to attack you. And you're very, you know, tactically careful about who's attacking you. Well, I've responded to jobs where the, the wife is complaining, like, I want him arrested. But now you go to cuff him and he's fighting and now yep. she's fighting you. It's like, yeah. wait a minute, what's going on here? Yep. But see, that's tough because, look, like... I responded to a job where he was in the back room. There was a big, huge bed in the middle of the room. He's on the other side of it. My partner's standing there. Now I'm watching her because of, you know, I don't want her to go into the kitchen, get a knife, and now she's attacking us. But now I got to, 
there's no room to move there. So if he started swinging or he had a weapon somewhere, it, you know, it, it's tough in, in apartments like that. What do you do? Start tossing the furniture? I mean, it's, it's hard enough developing tactics with your partner. Right. You know, like you the, have to know your partner. And you got to know your partner. And we all have different, you know, ways of approaching things. So working together with a partner, you know, after every job, you would talk about it. Hey, you know, next time, make sure you do this, you do that, or right. I'll be here. And you develop that over time. And now to throw these people in, unless they're going to be steady partners. Right. So now you're watching somebody else. Now yeah. to just make sure they don't get It's hurt. a distraction. It's another person you have to be concerned for. I just don't, I don't see it. It doesn't make sense. I'd love to hear, like, people like Lieutenant Pranzo. The guy is... Has done everything on this job. He's he's well versed in in the the policies and procedures and how it could help. Uh, if Lieutenant Pranzo is still <laughs> on the radio, radio check, radio check. Anyway, listen, we've been jabbering on and on. I just want to tell you that uh, you know, again, please keep these officers in your prayers. The five officers that were shot so far this year—it's just it's disgusting. Uh, but like I said, out of tragedy, sometimes some good happens. It looks like Eric Adams is is trying to unify the city and the politicians and the naysayers. He actually made a statement about these social justice warriors on Twitter. And, you know, that's not New Yorkers. The, those aren't the New Yorkers. These are the infiltrators that are just trying to disrupt and destroy. And I'm so glad he's doing that. I really give him a lot of kudos. He's doing a great job. Uh, the first month in office, you know, it's a difficult job. He's putting his team together, uh, but you know, he, he's responding appropriately, and I think he's 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 moving to unify this city. Let's all pray for Officer Morrow. He's fighting, you know, the the good fight. Uh, and then Thursday is the wake at St. Patrick's St. Patrick's Cathedral from one to eight in Midtown Manhattan off of Fifth Avenue. Uh, if you're around, please try to make it. This is important. We have to unify this city and fight crime where it, and fight the people who are trying to disrupt this city. Uh, so I thank you all for that. I do want to mention on Tuesday, do you want to tell them about our wonderful... Well, um, Tuesday we have Thomas Kniff. He ran for Manhattan District Attorney against Alvin Bragg. And... Um yeah, that, that's going to be a great show. And I, I just want to point out the fact Tommy is a great guy. Tommy and I are friends. We've, we've you know, uh, worked together on cases and stuff. I supported his campaign. Uh, this is not going to be an attack on Alvin Bragg. This is going to be an educational uh, uh, video that we're doing. We're going to be discussing the tragic incident that just happened with these officers and, and the importance of sending a message to the community and, and prosecuting crime. And we're hoping to just influence Alvin Bragg. I ran for Queens District Attorney in 2019. Tom ran against Alvin Bragg uh, in this last race, and I thought he did well, uh, you know, in their debates and whatnot. So I think don't expect this to be an attack. We want to help the city. And in Eric Adams, you know, message, we want to unify the city. So we want to help Alvin Bragg see the, you know, where he's going and how that may not be the best way to go and try to bring the city back to uh, the safe city it used to be. Ange? Um, 
Give the video a thumbs up. Subscribe if you haven't already. And um, we'll see you guys on Tuesday. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, 6 p.m. thanks for being here. We didn't think we were going to get a, a live. We just yeah. had to do this. We had to come out. There was so much going on. But thank you all for continuing to support us. I love this channel. It gives me an opportunity to really just, you know, share what's going on and our, our opinions. Uh, so we wish you all the best. Everyone stay safe and, and keep these officers in your prayers. Good night, everybody. Good night.